This is Psych Bates. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Psych Debates. We're so excited to have you guys back on. Hello, I know I'm excited. Definitely for me, <laughs> this is an episode that I'm looking forward to. Um, it's a little bit of an episode of like, I don't know, I feel like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, right. it really makes you stop and ask that question of like, what, what is what is my role here? What am I doing? What am I trying to do? Right, and really be inspired. Um by having conversations with folks like Dr. Tom Insull, mm-hmm. who's a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, um, an entrepreneur, um, a social leader. Um, he was the NMIH director uh, from 2002 to 2015. Um, and afterwards, he co-founded a number of organizations um, to support folks with severe mental illness, um, and more recently published his book, Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, um, where he focused on a number of topics and particularly um, reorganization and reorganization of the mental health care system um, and a paradigm shift in how we look at mental illness. Um, also, he, he with, a, with a number of journalists, co-founded uh, Mindsight News. Um, which is a nonprofit digital publication focused on mental health issues. Um, we're really excited to have him on. Yeah, no, so excited. I think a guy like this who is so experienced and has had his hands in so many pieces of the mental health care system and and <laughs> pieces of the United States in general and the, both the public and the private sector is, is going to be fascinating. So I think yeah. this will be really cool to hear what he has to say. Yeah, and definitely, I think I'm I'm very curious to hear his opinion on what the future of psychiatry will be, and the role of us as healers. Um, and so, without any further delay, I'd like to call the house to debates. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Psych Debates. Dr. Insel, we're so excited about having you on. Um, I've heard about you way, way before I even got into residency. Um, and I was coming to residency and going to medical school thinking about psychiatry in a very biological way, as a matter of fact. And so when I realized that there was a shift, um, and it seems to have been a shift around 2015 for you, um, to focus on something else. I was very intrigued. Um, and this recent book that you just published, Healing um, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, has kind of explained to me why that shift happened. But can you tell us in your own words what was going on at that time that made you kind of shift from being an NMIH director and kind of having a focus on neuroscience to now this new focus? Yeah. So, hey, first, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, real pleasure to be part of this uh, series. And I love what you guys are doing. I think calling this debates is kind of fun, a little provocative, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about some things that are a little provocative today. Um, 2015, I, I had been director of the National Institute of Mental Health for 13 years um, was a really wonderful experience for me, a chance to uh, dive deep into many, many different research areas. And I must say that was a period of just tremendous excitement. We had the 
President Obama's Brain Initiative, which I was the co-chair for. And then we had um, huge technical breakthroughs in areas like optogenetics and the beginning of some really fancy cellular imaging, and even the beginning of a lot of the single cell work, which has now matured much more since then. I was um, giving a talk to a group of of uh, family members in 2015 on the West Coast, uh, telling them about all this cool stuff. And, you know, you do that when you're an, an NIH Institute director, because it's a public institution. You live on taxpayer dollars. And at some point, you've got to be held accountable to people who are paying your salary, which is the general public. So I, I did that on a regular basis. And uh, this particular talk was kind of my standard PowerPoint included some videos of uh, watching uh, brain circuits and how they function and uh, looking at the effect of in mice uh, who had uh, autism genes uh, inserted, and, you know, just a whole range of cool stuff with stem cells and, and uh, where we were with um, the molecular basis of mental illness. And at the end of the talk, so the first question in the Q&A was somebody who got up and and he said, uh, man, you just don't get it. You know, I have a 24-year-old son with schizophrenia. And he's been hospitalized four times, incarcerated twice, made two suicide attempts. He's currently homeless. Look, look, our house is on fire. And you're talking about the chemistry of the paint. And I was a little defensive initially. I mean, I basically said, look, you know, Research is a marathon, it's not a sprint, it's revolutions and take time, all that stuff. But I, I had been saying that for already 13 years. Uh, and the reality was that across those 13 years, the, uh, while we had made phenomenal progress on science and on the scientific enterprise with you know, lots of discoveries that were heralded on the covers of Nature and Science magazines, uh, the suicide rate, meanwhile, had gone up almost by that time, really had gone up 30%. And um, if you looked at the morbidity of mental illness, there were more people being incarcerated, more people homeless, more people dying of treatable diseases than we saw in 2002 when I had taken over. So um, I had this sort of, at some point, for myself, my own kind of personal interest in public health, I had to sort of ask myself, is this what I want to do with the, with the time I have left? I was at that point about, well, I think I was almost 65. And I was thinking, well, with another 10 years, um, do I want to continue to promote uh, the academic pursuit of research in mental illness, or uh, which is a marathon, which does take time and highly important. It's actually vital, right? Um, or do I want to take the time to figure out how do we disseminate the discoveries that were made in the last 20 or 30 years, in, uh, which don't seem to be having the impact they should have, even though they looked pretty good in our randomized clinical trials, like, why aren't we actually bending the curve here? So that led ultimately to my leaving um, government service and trying initially in the tech industry and then in a set of nonprofits, uh, trying to see whether we could do better um, to actually 
have an impact on those public health measures of morbidity and mortality. And I'm still very much on that path. I, I mean, I think the answer is still kind of um, that it's a work in progress. It is a marathon, by the way. Uh, whether you're doing it through science or through service, it's still a lot of it's 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 a long slug slog. But um, I do feel that the NIMH work is vital and um, absolutely critical that we continue to support it and grow it and even expand it. But um, at some point, for my own personal needs, I wanted to focus on the service and not just on the science. And is it that um, uh, is it that factors that are that there isn't that um, filtration of or um, that people aren't getting access to services that are already available and resources like evidence-based therapies and medications and psychosocial interventions? Is that the reason uh, you think that the suicide rate, for instance, is going up in the United States? Yeah, it's a bunch of things. I mean, I, in the book, like the book is kind of in three parts. And the first part is saying oh, these things are a mess. And the second part says, actually, uh, we know what to do. We know how to improve care. Like uh, we know that if we can um, improve access, improve quality, uh, improve the accountability and pay for the things that work, and get people to do the stuff that actually we knew back in the 1970s was really effective that um yeah that that outcomes will improve um and there's every reason to think that because in fact the outcomes were better at one point when we did uh more of the things that worked so when i started my career now you know four decades ago during the community mental health movement um we didn't have all the, you know, we didn't have the range of medications. We didn't have all the branded psychotherapies, but we provided something that we today call whole person care. You know, we actually provided a much broader range of services that today don't get paid for. And so a lot of what I call for in the book isn't like having to come through with a new molecular marker, molecular target for a new set of medicines, but it's doing stuff we did 30 or 40 years ago, ACT teams, clubhouses, finding ways to actually um, it, bring families into the process um, and following people, whether they're inpatient or outpatient, you're accountable for them over time. Something that you don't see today in such a fragmented system. We had a, a, a um, social safety net that today is pretty fragmented. So that's the second part of the book. Um, and, and it, basically makes the argument that one reason we haven't reduced suicide or morbidity or broad mortality is um, is that we just don't have the care system that we should have. We know what to do. We're not doing it. The third part of the book is actually a little bit. I do want to ask more that. about that second yeah. part. Okay. Um, okay. And it seems that this is something you mentioned in a presentation you gave in um, UCSF. Um, and you mentioned that also that the suicide rate has gone down in other countries. And that made me very curious about if it's a resource issue, because I imagine here in the United States, we have the state of the art research facilities. We have state of the art training. Uh, there, is there something going on? Is there something in Americans too, whether it be policy, environmental, um, or workforce that's contributing to this or is there something that we can learn from our colleagues in other countries that we can implement here 
Yeah, it's it's the right question, Monty. It's like trying to figure out um, who's been successful and what have they done and what can we learn from that. Um, it's a little hard to answer. Some of this, this the the numbers have gone down um, in many other parts of the developed world, um, and that may have very little to do with healthcare, which actually is the third section of the book, which is to say, if we really care about suicide, we care about health outcomes, we have to think way beyond healthcare, which is a mistake I think we all make. Whenever we start to talk about mental health, pretty quickly we're talking about mental health outcomes, uh, mental health care, like, okay, which medications, which clinics, which therapies, like, okay, I get that. That's kind of what we do. But actually, according to a lot of very smart public health experts, Healthcare explains about 10% of the variance in health outcomes. Much more of it is due to not to like what medicines you're on or what clinics you go to, but where you live, who you live with, how you live, what you live for, all these things that have to do with lifestyle, um, uh, activity, your environment, things that probably are less often the focus of what we call healthcare, and yet mm. um, far more important for ultimate health outcomes. I, I think that's super important for us to grasp because if you say, well, what's happened in other countries that suicide's gone down, it's probably not so much about their healthcare systems, although sometimes it could be, but it's about uh, other other things, whether what have to do with the economy of that country, have to do with um, the the living conditions, a range of other issues, or you see things like what we have in Ukraine now, where there's just this enormous sense of mission and, and, and sense of purpose that's driving the whole population. So I think when we talk about uh, whether it's suicide or other forms of mortality, we want to think beyond just uh, healthcare explanations to think about what else is happening. And, and how do we... Um, how do we begin to influence those factors? Because it's, to me, it's really interesting that in the United States, um, we spend almost $4 trillion on healthcare. Um, and that's like 10% of health outcomes. And when you look at the other things that others, there's other pieces of the puzzle that correspond to whether it's you know, these social determinants or lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, that are probably far more important aspects or predictors of health outcomes. And we don't pay for that. You know, you, I tell the story often, I'm on the board of um, Fountain House, a clubhouse in New York, in New York City, that does a spectacular job of helping people with serious mental illness rebuild their lives and claim some form of recovery. And you know what they do or what we do at Fountain House, I think is probably far more important than what people are getting in the various clinics or hospitals where they've traveled through. And yet, you know, we, we survive on bake sales. You know, we survive on, on charity, on philanthropy uh, in, a, in a nation that's spending almost $4 trillion on all that other stuff. So it does beg the question, um, have we really figured out what we mean by healthcare? Or do we well? Do we really have essentially a sick care system here, that 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 is about 
taking care of people when they're in crisis, when they're sick, but it really fails them uh, in that in that drive for recovery and in, in that kind of the long term hard work they have to do to actually rebuild a life because all of that is left to charity. Yeah. And, you know, that brings to my attention the idea of words and specifically beyond the words, the philosophies behind the words um, and what do we mean by healthcare and illness and well-being. Those topics do come up and may be relevant. So in the context of other countries, as you mentioned, having a sense of mission in Ukraine might be a cultural philosophical idea that kind of permeated that culture from earlier on, or, you know, for other reasons, or through governmental interventions on and so forth. It makes me think what role as psychiatrists we can play, it feels like we have to be philosophers and be lawyers and be politicians and be environmentalists. Um, and it, it becomes daunting. Um, uh, to be able to put on all those hats, although that is the work that, that, that is the level at where the interventions can really provide, um, benefit as you mentioned. Well, if we want to be healers, we have to be more than prescribers. Um, I've gotten really interested in this notion of recovery, which is very different from the idea of treating acute illness and relieving acute symptoms. That's important. So I don't want to mitigate, I don't want to minimize that at all. I sometimes tell the story that while I was working on the book, I, I began learning about recovery and I asked a lot of people about it because I I had been thinking about recovery kind of in the 12 step drug abuse model, which is not really what I was trying to work on. And I was asking a, um, psychiatrist in LA who worked on Skid Row, this, what we now call a street psychiatrist. I said, like, well, what does this mean to you? And he said, well, man, it's really, it's so simple. It's just the three Ps. Three Ps, like, what do you got? Like Paxil, Prozac, like, what's that third P? And he said, no, no, come on. He said, it's just people, place, and purpose. That's what you need for recovery. If you want these folks to actually build a life, you got to have people, social support. They've got to feel that there's someone who has their back. They've got to have a place. They can't be homeless. You know, they've got to be in an environment that um, supports them and that's healthy where they can eat well and sleep well and all of that, where they're safe. And then they've got to have a purpose. And I kind of tell you this idea of purpose, having a mission, something we rarely talk about in healthcare, and yet it is vital, absolutely vital for people to recover and for people to thrive. They got to have a, a reason, a purpose. As somebody, I think it was Nietzsche said, you know, the person who has a, has a why to live can live with almost any how. And, and we don't talk enough about that. We don't talk about meaning, about purpose, about uh, mission. And so, yeah, so for, for I think the psychiatrists who want to be healers, uh, it's going to be really important for them to learn about medications and to learn about psychotherapy. And, and those things are you know, like, that, that's the, those are table stakes. But if you really want to make the difference, uh, you're going to get beyond that. You're going to have to think about people, place, and purpose, or what I 
often yeah. say, you know, it, it's 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 social, it's environmental, it's even political. Even the to, Nietzsche reference, I yeah. think, is is also again referring to this idea of philosophy playing a role, not just to kind of drop the word, but that being the the kind of the most elemental or fundamental level at which we can start to think about this again at like the block level or the or the fundamental level. Um, do you think that I don't know, Jonathan? I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Like having, we don't really get taught that much. We don't get taught philosophy actually in residency. I don't think that was part of the curriculum. And I'm curious to hear from you, Jonathan, also Dr. Inso. Like, what what role do you think philosophy can play in in, in residency training, specifically for psychiatrists as healers? Um. Well, when I think about healing, I think, um, what is the alternative here? Like, um, I guess to maybe to build some more context to that, when I think about my co-residents, a lot of them may be more interested in becoming a psychiatrist so that they can fill the particular role that they're most interested in. Like they want to go into ECT, like electroconvulsive therapy, or they want to become a consultation liaison psychiatry. And their goal may not be to necessarily um, say like really help somebody as, as much as is needed to be helped. Um, and, it, and it's not that they don't want to do that, but what they most find fulfillment in is doing something else. Um, and, and so, so I guess like when I, what I, when I think about this question of like, what is the philosophy here is like, what, what are, what are we all individually here to do? And do we have the kind of like maybe self-security um, to be, be able to look inward and say, well, what is it that we really want to do? Because I, I wonder, like, I feel like a lot of, like in myself included at times, we may not like the answer, uh, you know, especially on those long days, we may not want to have to think about all the social determinants of health. We may just want to be able to kind of do our job and move on. And so I wonder um, how that can be something that is not, you know, it, it's either, it's it's clearly this is something that we should be doing, um, like all of us, or... And you're taking kind of a pragmatic stance of like saying, hey, like we have patients and we have a limited time and we live in a world and we yeah. have to fulfill the role we're in and no, totally. this is the path of least resistance is to kind of get a post somewhere it, um, not even not even the path of least resistance but like for example i have a i had a patient that i've um that uh, came into my outpatient clinic who was just 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 discharged from the hospital and the, the patient had um dementia with behavioral disturbances which means that they need a full-time caregiver and that they also are having behaviors that are making it very challenging for them to be taken care of. Um, and so that the patient was discharged to their daughter's home. Um, but the daughter didn't have the capability to take care of her. She had to work and, and this person really needs 24 hour care. And so then this patient, like a day after this hospitalization shows up in my outpatient office and the daughter is looking at me like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, and what am I supposed to tell the patient or the, the, the patient's daughter? I should, I say, Oh, you should go to the emergency department. Well, no, if I tell her to go to the emergency department, they're just going to say, well, no, you have to go home. He doesn't have a medical reason to be in the hospital. Um, and, and so really what the patient needs to be in is a safe place, but the safe place doesn't exist. And so am I, 
I guess like what I'm thinking is as a resident, and I spent like three hours on this when this patient came in <laughs> into my outpatient clinic, which uh, fortunately they were my last patient of the day. Otherwise, I couldn't have done this. Um, but like, what am I supposed to do here? Um, I, I called up social workers and, and tried to pull out all the stops that I could do, but I don't think that it's it's something that any psychiatrist can do unless there was drastic change in the system. And, and I don't know that anyone would really want to do that too because of the amount of work and low, like, you know, reward afterwards, the low pay. Now, it's interesting how this conversation has evolved. So Monty started by asking about philosophy and residency and uh, Jonathan ended up talking about a patient who needed basically a place, right? Needed a, a safer place with um, with what we would call continuous care. Um, and, and I think that contrast is an important one that um, I don't think we need philosophy as a topic for residents. I think we need compassion. We need to help um, residents understand what it means to be healing and, and what that is going to require of them. And the reality is that it's... Um, you see one person at a time, and yet at some point um, you have to realize you're part of a system that's incentivizing um, a lot of the wrong behaviors. You're, you're not you're not in a world that is reimbursing people for healing. It's reimbursing people for again for sick care, for perpetuating a system of intensive, expensive care, and not for actually figuring out for that dementia patient, um, how they can get to a place where they'll get the social support and they'll get the safe place and they'll even have something that they, has some meaning for them in an environment that takes care of an entire family and uh, allows a, a family to thrive. And that is not impossible. You know, what I'm just, what I've just said is not, doesn't actually require a new RNA vaccine or uh, developing a, um, a a CRISPR fragment for um, for the hippocampus. I mean, it, this is actually not that hard to do, but we have to decide that we care about it. We have to decide that this is what we mean by healthcare. I'm telling you, with four trillion dollars, you could build a lot of people, place, and purpose if you care about it. But if what you're really trying to promote is like more high tech uh, diagnostics, more hospital care, more you know, uh, branded medications. It's not, you know, pretty quickly you can use up a lot of that money without ever doing the things that matter for families and for individuals with serious mental illness. So, look, I, you guys, it's going to be up to you guys. I, you know, we've screwed this up uh, for your generation. You're going to have to try to fix it. Uh, but there's a lot of fixing to do. And the point of the book is to say, this isn't rocket science. This isn't even a research question. We know what to do here. We've known what to do for 40 years. Uh, how are we going to do it? So I'll tell you what I've done. And you can see whether this makes sense. But it's, I finally, after re finishing the book, and I was kind of, first thing I did was I said, hey, we need a social movement to raise up awareness about this. And so I started writing a lot and um, speaking a lot. Then I 
launched a, a nonprofit publication called Mindsight News, where Sight is S-I-T-E. It's a free daily publication that basically calls this out and talks about mental illness as a social justice problem as much as a medical problem. It's both. And I think we have to be clear about that. And it needs both medical and social solutions. Um, and so Mindsight basically is very solution focused and every day it, it, um, it, it provides the, the narratives, the stories about what's happening in Arkansas or what's happening in California, or what's happening someplace in the country, often someplace elsewhere in the world where there's some really interesting innovation that's making a difference, helping people to recover people with a serious mental illness or sometimes with addiction, we cover that as well. And we've got now, I think, a terrific group of uh, journalists who've been working on this, some of whom have wanted to do this their whole lives and have never had an opportunity. So it's kind of cool to see. And I think there's an audience that really cares about this. So it's creating a community and really creating uh, the beginning of a social movement. Here's the, here's the downside of that. Um, a social movement is probably necessary and not sufficient because to the extent that this is healthcare in the United States, healthcare is a business. So if you want people to pay for your clubhouse or you want them to pay for your act team, or you want to pay for intensive care management, all the stuff that we know is vital for recovery, you gotta, you gotta get them to, to, to realize that this is worth, that there's a, there's a margin here, there's a profit in doing that. So I founded a, a company called Vana Health, V-A-N-N-A, which is actually building out the business case that says that recovery services, these kinds of psychosocial rehabilitative services that have been around for three or four decades that we know are incredibly effective in helping people with schizophrenia, bipolar, severe depression, helping them to recover, that they actually, if you invest in those, you'll save money in terms of ER visits and hospital care and all that really expensive stuff that you've been paying for, you don't actually have to spend so much if you're willing to spend a little bit less to help them get these recovery-based services, which right now are only paid for through charity, through philanthropy. So Vana is trying to make that case in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, will be in a few other states, I think fairly soon. And I think that's you know the other direction to go in is to say, um, we've got to actually compel payers to start because this is a payer driven system um, to, to change those incentives, to make the incentives about recovery, make the incentives about helping people thrive, making the incentives about health and not just about sickness. Again, we know how to do this. It's a matter of compelling the system to begin to change accordingly. And I'm actually incredibly hopeful. I think this is a five to 10 year project, but I think we'll be able to make significant progress even in the next two or three years. Um, the VA has already done a piece of this. We've seen this happen in the UK and in Germany and other countries. I think we can do it here. Hmm. And that brings up to me one of the things that, that you had mentioned in your talk, um, Jonathan, I'm not sure if you were going to say something, but I'll just say this, which is you mentioned the lack of engagement, um, you mentioned the lack of quality, and you mentioned the lack of accountability. And what came to my mind is a lack of accountability in, in measuring the outcomes. 
Um, like for instance, first sellers, uh, or for, for, you know, the, the insurance companies and, um, the, the government providing the funding for, for the mental health care, um, they may not have those, we, we may not have the language that they want us to speak, which is numbers. Uh, it would be much easier if I told you, Hey, I brought this blood pressure down from 140 to 120. Um, how do we, how do we start incorporating that, uh, into the conversation about rehabilitation and what does that look like? Yeah, well, it's, it's very easy to do. I think you have to start measuring. And the fact that we don't measure in psychiatry is, as I say in the book, I think it's one of the reasons we haven't made greater progress. I do think that's actually it's one of the reasons that those public health outcomes uh, continue to go in the wrong direction um, is that we're not even that aware of them. I used to go around to when I was at NIMH, I'd I'd probably do two, three, four grand rounds every year. Um, and uh, I'd always meet with the residents and I'd always sit down and say, I'd, I had that set of questions like, let's go through the morbidity and mortality statistics for mental mental illnesses. Like how many people die of, and what is the morbidity from? Uh, and I never found a residency group that knew anything about this, could even think that way. Uh, and part of the problem is we don't, actually measure these things well. And the CDC, which is supposed to be tracking the epidemiological outcomes, and they do a spectacular job on infectious diseases, you know, they're still about two years behind measuring suicide. Um, They're a little bit better, uh, maybe a year behind measuring drug overdoses, which is important. Um, But they, you know, they have COVID numbers every week every two weeks, I guess. Um, I don't understand why we can't do better um, on on these mental illnesses, especially because, you know, when you look at mortality, which is a pretty hard outcome for, um, for young people, people under 30, about, eh, about 7,800 have died of COVID. And in the same time period, we've lost about 100,000 to mental, to deaths of despair, suicide and drug overdoses. And, you know, I say about 100,000 because in fact, we don't have the kind of accurate numbers and the up-to-date numbers that we have for uh, COVID. But but it's a pretty safe estimate when you look at the numbers we do have from 2020. And we know that they've gone up, uh, at least the overdose numbers went up in 2021 to say that it's it's gotta be well over 100,000. So that's like a 15 fold greater number loss of young people lost to deaths of despair. So let's be clear. I mean, this is really a hair on fire problem. This is like, this isn't just uh, a, you know, a, a minor or modest public health problem. This is a massive public health issue. And um, we're not tracking it well. We're not taking it seriously. And that's one of the reasons it doesn't get better, you know, because if you don't measure, you don't manage well. We've got to start measuring. And that means um, capturing not just public health outcomes, but even uh, basic clinical outcomes, looking at whether our interventions are working and who they're working for. And if people aren't responding, then learning from that and doing better. When you look in medicine, uh, where we have made progress, it's usually because we've been able to learn from our failures. We've been able to really get 
good data and good feedback and then change accordingly. So we've built these learning healthcare systems for childhood cancer and now for diabetes and for cardiovascular disease. We don't have that um, in mental illness. We're still basically a data-free zone and that's not a good recipe for progress. So, you know, when, when I, I, I appreciate you mentioning this, uh, because I, I, when I think about the social determinants of health and mental illness, I, I, I recognize that there's a lot of problems and I, I've heard before you know, stats like what you mentioned earlier, that really the, the, the what we do, the, uh, the medication piece is maybe 10% of uh, helping the problem. And so I, I remember when I was in medical school, I would hear stats like this and I would think, well, gosh, I want to, I want to fix things. I want to help. And, and the, the answers are not easy. I think from, um, I mean, definitely right now, but it's certainly from an earlier training level. And, and I wonder if you have any thoughts of what say the, the lay person or the, the person in college or, you know, somebody can do to, to help this, you know, these, these problems, or if there's anything that can be done? Well, there's a lot that can be done. And I think anybody can have a role, depending on what they they want to do and what their own personal experience is. Um, uh, the, one of the big revolutions in care in the last decade has been the role of peers and the recognition, uh, sometimes from the global mental health movement, where task shifting and task sharing have become real themes and a, and a real story of success. And I think you had Vikram Patel do an earlier version of the debate. And, and Vikram is, deserves a ton of credit for having uh, demonstrated the, um, the efficacy and safety, the power of this task sharing approach. But at, at its essence, that's about helping people who don't have credentials, don't have um, four years of medical school or you know, nursing degree, um, but have an interest and have experience and passion, giving them the tools that they need to be effective as community health workers, um, whether that's in Botswana or Boston. And we now know that this, you know, that that peers with a, a few tools under their belt, a few things that they can learn how to deliver, like motivational interviewing and a few other things, can be incredibly effective, not just for engaging people in care, but actually as part of the care team and, and for uh, developing the kind of trust and, and social support, the relationship that's been so neglected um, in sort of traditional healthcare. You know, it, it's one of the main reasons why we haven't done better in mental health outcomes is simply because the people who who need the care the most are probably the least likely to receive it. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is that these diseases themselves often preempt their own care. If you're psychotic, you don't think you're sick. And if you're depressed, you're so hopeless, what would be the point? And if you're anxious, you're probably going to avoid care. So we, we've got you know a tough problem. But the lack of engagement is really the issue we need to, that's the issue we need to solve. It's not just lack of access. It's not just the, you know, the need for better treatments. Of course, we always need better treatments and we always do need access, but, but 
best estimates from the epidemiological data would say that uh, more than half, probably about you know, 60% of the people who should be in care aren't in it until they're in a crisis, but they don't, you know, they're not getting the treatments that we have today. And of those who do go into care, 60% um, don't get anything that would even be considered minimally adequate according to the National Comorbidity Survey. Um, so, so you're left, you know, 40% get care, 40% of those get adequate care. And of the, you know, you're down to what, 16% uh, and about a third of those get well and a third get a little better and a third don't respond to whatever the care is. So that's not the world we want to be in, right? If we really want to make a difference, we're going to have to move upstream and make it not 40, 40, 33, but maybe like 80, 80, 33. Even if you don't change the, um, the efficacy of the treatments you've got, at least make sure that more people are getting them. So you guys in training have got to remember this. You've always got to remember this, that uh, you're seeing 6% of the problem. And you might do really well, and maybe you can do well with that 6%. And maybe, you know, if Duke works really hard, you get that up to 7 or 8%. But the vast majority of people who could benefit, you're never going to see them. And so if we want to reduce suicide, if we want to reduce morbidity, it's got to be solving that problem. How do you solve that? Well, you have to think in a different way about the problem. You've got to really go after building a workforce that looks and talks and acts and has the experience of the people you're trying to serve. You have to build trust. There is no trust. And fundamentally, they don't buy what we sell. So we have to rethink this. There are lots of ways to, to go after this. And one of them is to say, well, if they're not coming to us, where are they? What are they doing? Well, some of them are on YouTube. Some of them are in you know, in Discord or TikTok or, you know, someplace else. They may be on a social media site of, that we don't even know about. Um, uh, some of them are in homeless encampments and don't have access to technology at all. I mean, there's just a bunch of things. A lot of them are in the criminal justice system. That's where there's probably 10 times as many people with schizophrenia tonight who will be sleeping in a jail or prison than in a public hospital. Is, easily so, 10 times more so so what i'm so, hearing is the, the average person can go to essentially wherever there are these people that are having trouble and and it could be via social media platform or if there is such a like a peer organization in their community they can join that um and so what they just bet. like search for search for that essentially is like this yeah. some kind of community organization where you can be paired it sounds like with like a mental health patient yeah, there's lots of options. NAMI is a great resource for families to be able to help other families. Um, I started a company oh, at the beginning of the pandemic, so what is it, two and a half years ago, called Humanest, which was just to create communities of people who wanted to help each other, people, you know, mostly students struggling with depression or anxiety, and it was a chance to become part of a social network, a tribe, that where you're not just you don't just get help, but you give help. And what we discovered in the process was that giving help was probably the most therapeutic thing that we could offer. Very empowering. It was that third P, it was giving people a sense of purpose. So there's a lot happening, a lot going on. Um, I'm not sure psychiatry has really kept up with 
you know, that entire movement that's taking place in the way that people access uh, help for their psychiatric disorder. Um, Psychiatry is is a pretty conservative and fairly um, rigid uh, endeavor where uh, people do what their mentors did uh, 20 or 30 years ago. The world has changed a lot. And and, and the world we're trying to help now, mostly young people, uh, they're digital natives. They grew up in a very different environment. Um, when we were at Humanest, we asked people, mostly university students, um, would you rather uh, meet uh, somebody one-on-one for psychotherapy or be get uh, asynchronous group chat with 29 of your peers? And 70% of people voted for asynchronous group chat. Now, my guess is you probably have not had a lot of seminars on how to use asynchronous group chat to help people with depression and anxiety. Uh, but let me tell you, that's where the world is right now. They are not. They, you know, they moved on since uh, 1995 or 1985 when your teachers were in training. That's what we have. And um, just among our co-residents, we have a, a group chat, which has definitely been a source of support in our training experience, yeah. at least for I me. Think yeah, that tells you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, and with technology, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? Dr. Intel, it's like double-edged sword. You know, YouTube is great, but I'm sure somebody can pull up a stat where YouTube can maybe contribute to mental illness. You know, a rise of social media also contributing to mental illness. Um, and finding a way to kind of hone the things that work uh, in those things, but also make them uh, beneficial for folks can be can be quite tricky. You know, and thinking about engagement and and a person-centered online um, application or, uh, system and referring to the organization that you set up in HumanX, looking forward, are there things that, um, maybe perhaps not proprietary, but things that you're working on that, uh, we should look forward to, or things that people, other people are working on that maybe should get more attention? Well, yeah, I think they're, they're, the sort of three buckets to look at in terms of um, technology and what's changing. And I, by the way, Monty, I would agree with you. I think the social media sites have been a huge part of the problem. They have not been part of the solution. And we have to, we have to change that. You know, we have to really make them accountable for, um, for helping us to solve what is a, is a hair on fire problem. Uh, and, you know, they, they need to own up to that. But uh, in terms of what we can do and where where the the tools are right now, I would say the you know the the three buckets are you you've got um, the idea of people getting care online, uh, which is you know just moving from brick and mortar to to Zoom or to some uh, remote platform, and you know telehealth is now um, the I think probably the primary way that people are getting mental health care. I, Rough estimate is that the the four or five companies that have scaled that are billion dollar plus companies are probably the largest mental health providers, mental health care providers in the United States today. None of them existed five years ago, at least not in their present form. So that's like stunning. That means, you know, we continue that pace of innovation. Even by the time you guys finish your training, we'll be in a different world. 
it's really changed dramatically. And they've done a lot to democratize care. It makes it easy to get access. You don't have to wait six weeks for an appointment. You can you can go online after this seminar and you know within 15 minutes be a, a, attached to a coach and within a 24 hours be talking to a credentialed therapist. So boy, that's that's a new world. And those companies each see hundreds of thousands of people every every year. Phenomenal. So that's pretty interesting. Um, so that's one. As I think this kind of the democratization of democratization of care and the and the move to these remote um, systems, which I, by the way I think are going to change dramatically because they'll, I think telehealth 1.0 is where we're at. They'll start to collect more data and become telehealth 2.0, but we're not there yet. The second is that though the care platforms themselves have begun to change, so we we can use uh, technology to integrate care better, to make sure that primary care and specialty care uh, sharing data, that they, you know, that patients have a more seamless experience. We can collect the kinds of metrics that have been missed largely in the care system. So we can start to become more accountable and we can actually provide higher quality of care. Um, and certainly it's gonna be the case that, you know, you're training, um, once you finish at Duke is going to be, is going to continue. You're going to continue to be in training for years, but that's going to be through YouTube. It's going to be through other sorts of platforms that will allow you to, um, to learn all kinds of stuff that wasn't available when I was around. So we, you know, we can get people trained at a much higher level and we should require higher levels of performance. So I think that's a second bucket is the way we improve quality through better coordination, better training. The third bucket, is this this kind of individual measurement? So measuring what both providers and patients are going through um, in the course of treatment, and uh, we call that digital phenotyping sometimes, which just means that instead of genotyping, we're actually capturing how somebody thinks, how they feel, how they behave by looking at wearable data, phone data, a whole bunch of things that you know, it's obvious your phone knows more than you do about what you're doing every day. Um, so why aren't we using that kind of data to, to track sleep, to track, you know, a tremor for somebody on lithium or eye blink rate for somebody on an antipsychotic? I mean, these are not that complicated. They're not that hard to do. And yet we're not measuring uh, outcomes in the way that we should. And so um, I think that the next big phase of this is going to be that just as in diabetes and hypertension and other areas of medicine, we'll start to have objective data to augment the subjective data that we've been uh, collecting for years. And, um, and it's often gonna be in that gap between subjective and objective where things will get really interesting. My own personal passion for this is around language because so much of what we do in psychiatry is communicate like we're doing here. And, um, and we have now the tools with natural language processing to be able to decode language and to get objective measures of sentiment and coherence and, and grandiosity and all this stuff. You, could, you, can, you can get an automatic readout within seconds, within nanoseconds of every conversation. Why are we doing that? You know, why, why do you say when you, after you've seen somebody in the ER, there's a thought disorder here, instead of saying, well, they have an 0.6 on grandiosity and 0.9 on coherence. And they, but they have about an 0.2 in terms of, um, of suicidality. I mean, look, we can do that and we should do that. And, 
certainly not by the time you graduate, but I think five years from now, um, that will be part of the way that um, psychiatry gets practiced with much better objective measures. That's fascinating. It makes me excited uh, to think about this, having this extra data and to, to give some more confidence to what we're doing is actually um, not just like my kind of gestalt of what I think is going on, but, oh, there's some actual objective measurements here. You know, it's that's the beauty of AI and what you can do with language these days. Most people have focused on using AI to produce language. So you can, you know, you can write a novel with AI and it's pretty hard now to know whether it's been written by a robot or by a person. But what's much more interesting for psychiatry is, is the decoding and objectifying. Uh, uh, so you know, master clinicians do this anyway. So they probably don't need it. And they're probably gonna be always better than, um, than an algorithm, but for like, I remember when I was at your stage in training and I never, you know, I, I'd be interviewing a psychotic patient with um, my supervisor and, and my supervisor would say, that's clearly a thought disorder. And I'd say, what was a, like, what do you mean? Like, well, what do you mean thought disorder? Tell me what that is. And they'd say, well, he was loose and, um, and he was grandiose and he was paranoid. And um, okay, like, I get it. That was what you heard and that's what you saw. But today we should be able to take those terms and quantify them, right? Because we know how to decode language. We know, I mean, the whole field of, of natural language processing was developed around this semantic coherence idea. That's where it started. Uh, so for sure, we ought to be able to start using that in mental health assessments. Uh, we just haven't done it yet, but it's coming. We'll get there. And and I think when we do, it'll provide a level, not only of objectivity, but it will allow us to upskill practice in emergency rooms in rural areas or in clinics in Central Africa where they'll have, you know, so you don't have somebody who's a master clinician but they can, they can operate and navigate with a lot more confidence in the same way that, you know, you, you wanna go someplace across town, you call an Uber, that driver may never have been there before. That's okay, he's got Google Maps to tell him how to get there. That's what we're talking about, something that can help people to navigate from, through a psychiatric interview and provide some objective measures of how somebody's thinking, how they're feeling, how they're behaving, that, allows some confidence, allows some objectivity. It's not perfect, maybe. And it's very difficult to measure what somebody doesn't say. So there's things like that that you have to you have to be highly aware of, but it can help. And we need to start moving into that world um, that technology can now offers us instead of running away from it. And as we're coming to an end here, um... You know, I know that uh, one of one of the one of the shifts that were paradigm shifts that you offered us as well as part of your your novels is looking at funding differently. And I know that you've kind of shifted your thoughts of perhaps looking at ex private and venture capital sources of funding. How does how does psychiatry um, 
negotiate that? How do how do we start to try to get that attraction going on? Um, because it seems well, it's like- there. It's explosive, Monty. That you know, mental health has like crushed it probably too well. We've got hmm. last year was five point one billion dollars in VC venture capital funding for mental health startups. That's that's more than the budgets of the National Institute of Mental Health, Drug Abuse, and Alcohol um, put together. I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, I don't know if it's all good. A lot of it's going to stuff that's probably not worth funding. And a lot of it's, you know, probably hype. A um, ton of it went into like uh, meditation apps instead of, and very little of it went into the needs of people with serious mental illness, which is why I started Vana because I was just so, I was just so frustrated that nobody was investing in the people who needed the most innovation. <laughs> Really, it seemed once again, once again, they're neglected. Uh, uh, that, it just doesn't seem right. So, um, I, I think there's already an enormous private sector interest in this field. It's not surprising um, if you're an entrepreneur. You know, you, you're like a moth drawn to the flame. Wherever you're, you see an area where people are spending a lot of money in care and getting really crappy results. That's the perfect storm that you look for as an entrepreneur. You want to you want to go there because so there's a lot of money to be saved, and um, you can you can see that in for instance with serious mental illness, which is what roughly a three hundred billion dollar price tag every year, and yet as we've been saying all along, the outcomes are terrible. So we got to be able to do better in a place like that. But the, so there's there's enormous um, private sector interest. The problem is that a lot of it is not really directed towards um, the public health need. It's directed more towards what will turn a rapid profit or what is what's a way of using the payment system um, uh, to to build out a margin rather than a mission. And uh, I I worry about that, but. There's no lack of interest and certainly no lack of investment right now. Um, it, the, the risk, of course, is that if it doesn't pay out and some of the companies that have gone public have not done well, um, then everybody decides to move someplace else. And we're, we're skating along that edge right now when you look at um, the outcomes for companies like Talkspace and some of the psychedelic companies. They, you know, they've lost a lot of their value. Um, so it's not all that clear that um, there'll be as much excitement in 2023 as there was in 2021. Yeah, that's what I guess it kind of makes me think too, this really needs to be something funded by uh, what I would think is the government, you know, because that would theoretically be the people that are most concerned about the society as a whole in the long term rather than a company who may just want to turn a quick profit, like very quick, where, whereas some of these social determinants of health things sound like they would benefit things later, like years down the line. Um, so, so I wonder, like, if there's anything we can do from that end, too, like in order to advocate, I don't know, from a, a, a governmental level. Yeah, Jonathan, you're right in the sense that the government's the biggest payer. So they're on the hook for 68% of the cost of serious mental illness. And that's just on the healthcare part not even counting criminal justice, a bunch of other areas that are super expensive. Um, so you'd think that the government would care the most about innovating and finding a way to save some of that money. Um, government's not really good at innovation. It's just not set up in the way that 
of the private sector is for moving quickly, disrupting systems, coming up with better ways to do things. Um, I end up thinking that the answer is both, right? Is like we did for the COVID vaccine where we brought together private and public sector into a partnership that said, all hands on deck, let's do what we need to do as quickly as possible to address this public health crisis. And uh, it brought government, pharmaceutical companies, academics together in Project Warp Speed or later what we call Project Active uh, through the Foundation for NIH um, to come up with all the things we needed to be able to serve the public. Well, we need that here, right? We need the, the capital and the brains of uh, the private sector, that, that hunger for innovation, along with what um, the public sector can bring in in terms of its... Um, its overall commitment to this population that has been so neglected. So I think that's where uh, we need to go. And whether we have the leadership to go there, whether we can get over our suspicion, um, which goes in both directions. The private sector has very little respect for the public sector and the public sector has very little trust in the private sector. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to figure that out in the way we did for COVID. But this is, just as urgent as the COVID problem was uh, early on, and um, and particularly even maybe more urgent for young people. So I don't think um, I don't think we can again going back to where we started. Uh, if the house is on fire, we've got to talk about more than the chemistry of the paint. And what we really need to ask ourselves is um, how long we want that fire to burn before we put it out. We know what to do, how do we put it all together, public and private together, to put this fire out as quickly as possible. Yeah, thank you. Well, completely makes sense. I um, I wish we had, you know, another five hours or more to be talking with you about this. So I, I think we, we've reached probably the end of our typical time, so I'll, I'll start wrapping things up. But Dr. Insol, is there anything you'd want to leave us with or, or anything... Um, yeah, that we haven't mentioned, you feel like what we should talk about? Well, we could go on and on, but it's been fun chatting with you guys. And um, I'm so glad you're doing this. I think there's a lot of topics uh, within the mental health space now that uh, need a, a good debate and a good airing. And um, uh, my role here today was just to be provocative and to try to uh, bring some ideas forward that you're probably not getting in your residency training program. Um, so I hope I hope I can leave you with the sense that um, the problem is big, and I'm incredibly hopeful that everything we need to do to solve this, we already know, um, and it now is up to you guys, next generation, to make it happen. Wonderful! Thank you so much. 